for this morning, if you can turn in your Bibles to the book of John. It is easy for us to imagine the same thing that the Pharisees imagined about themselves, to think much higher of ourselves than we ought. The Pharisees had a view of themselves that if they lived in the days of the prophets, they wouldn't have been like their fathers who persecuted and killed the prophets. One of the greatest errors of mankind is a higher view of himself than he ought to have. We think much higher of ourselves, our ability, and our openness to being proven true or right with regards to God. There are many people who imagine that if there was just enough proof, they would totally become Christians, they would follow the Lord and submit to him. The problem is, is that that's not the case. Even given all of the information of the resurrection, still those who were leaders in Jerusalem, who knew that Jesus had been risen from the dead, even at the testimony of the guards that were guarding the tomb, knowing that Jesus was risen from the dead still pervade the lie that someone came and stole his body. The problem is not knowledge. The problem is an unbelieving heart. And here in the center of the Gospel of John, John brings to his reader's ears this very warning. And we should sit up and pay attention because the reality is that when he is writing the Gospel of John, as we have said from the very beginning, he is writing this that you, reader, may believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and that by believing you may have life in his name. That you may believe and live. We say, fine, give us enough proof, give us enough signs or wonders. And what does Jesus respond to this? This generation always desires signs, always desires wonders. We want to appeal to our standard of proof rather than God's. And this is something that the reader is faced with in the Gospel of John over and over and over again. And here we have it in this morning's text. Our goal is John chapter 7 Verses 40 through 52. People were arguing over who Jesus of Nazareth was. And here's the fun thing. That argument continues to this day. People continually focus on who is Christ, what is his aspect. In fact, so pervasive was the... I guess our dimmer switch is having fun. So pervasive was the skepticism in our own country that in the 90s there was founded something called the Jesus Seminar. Are any of you familiar with this? Ever heard of it? The Jesus Seminar was a, a gathering of people that were historians, that were not believers and believers, and they were trying to put together, we want to construct who the real Jesus actually is, not just what scripture says. And they brought together experts in all these fields, in archaeology and history and all of this to try to reconstruct who is it that the real historical Jesus actually was, and wouldn't you know it? By the end of it, they were able to show that, even historically speaking, Jesus of Nazareth is exactly as he is described in the scriptures, because the scriptures are not the only place that references to him show up. There's several other places. 
At the end of all these investigations, they came back to realize that actually the scriptures are a wonderful expression of who Jesus of Nazareth is based on everything we can see even from history itself. That was not the original goal of that seminar. The original goal of that seminar was to call doubt upon the scriptural text. But the problem is, uh, every time somebody tries to do that, we end up in our own faces and on our own faces with humility of some level. But as the people are gathering around Jesus, the same discussion is still going on. They want to know who he is. Some say he's a prophet. Some say he is the Messiah. Some say he's actually just a false teacher and needs to be gotten rid of. There's all these different perspectives. In fact, if you go out to our culture today, scratch that. If you go to the average person sitting in the pew today amongst our churches and ask, was Jesus truly God or was he a good teacher that was just a man? the majority of people will answer he is just a man that is a good teacher. Majority, and it's not a small one either. We have to understand that since everything turns on the person of Christ, if we get this wrong, it affects the life that's promised in his name. It is not just that we believe in whatever Jesus is talking about, it's that we believe on him and that we have life in his name. And so the Gospels are continually presenting us with who he is, what he is able to do, not only what he is and what he is able to do, but who he is. The very creator of the heavens and the earth, here as one of us. If he is not that, then his words fall flat and his promises are unfulfillable. If he is promising to save us from our sins, that is a spiritual issue that cannot just be done by a natural man. To put it another way, if he is just merely a man, and let's say he was a perfect man, then his sacrifice is only good enough for one of us. He must be God. In order for the salvation that he has enacted to actually save his people from their sins, he must be both. But everyone's confused about this during his ministry. They're trying to figure out what's going on in the person of Christ. And I want you to see this this morning because it reflects even our own culture and sadly our own churches. I'd ask you to stand in honor of God and his word. John chapter 7 verses 40 through 52. Remember this is right after the Feast of Tabernacles where he stands up and talks about uh, the reality of the rivers of living water that shoot out from the hearts of those who trust in him. Um, Awesome stuff. Verse 40, the word of the Lord. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others says, this is the Christ. But some said, is this the Christ to come from, uh, excuse me, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? And so there was division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers, the officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered and says, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man 
without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does. They replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see, no prophet arises from Galilee. Our Father, we're grateful for this passage. We thank you for the challenge it is to our presumptions. (coughs) We thank you for the challenge it is to our skepticism. We thank you for what it teaches us about Christ and what it teaches us about ourselves. We pray, Father, that we are those who are found with life because of the belief that we have on the Lord Jesus Christ to save us because there is no hope outside of him. We pray that we devote ourselves to his words and his works, that we become more grateful for him as the days go on, that when all else is taken away, give me Christ, Christ alone, and Christ always. We pray in his name. Amen. You can be seated. It might surprise you to hear that so many people in the church are wrong about Christ. Believe it or not, so many people are wrong in the church about many different things because we have entered a time period in history where we would rather be entertained at church rather than to be taught by the word of God. And this is pervasive throughout the Western church, which is sad because we have been the center of study and theology for much of the latter part of our history in the church age. Uh, That is sadly moving away from us as we experience a culture in decline. We are experiencing a church in decline as well. That doesn't change the text, which is why we continually come back to the word of God and let it have its work on us. What is it that Christ has said? What is it that Christ has done? How will that change everything in the world? You see, if we are dealing with the God of the universe walking around in the first century, then that has ramifications for this morning here in Deposit, New York. That changes things. It changes everything about our assumptions. It changes everything about what we would prefer. Because here's the thing. One of the wonderful things about the gospel, and we learn this from all the false religions of the world, is that mankind would never make this story up. It doesn't put us in any good light at all. It doesn't say, hey, here's some rules. If you follow these, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, you will be able to present yourself on some level faultless or at least a little bit more righteous or at least achieve some level of nirvanic sense or achieve unto a certain celestial level or obedience to law. No, that's the false religions of the world. Here the gospel comes in and says, you want good news? You can't do any of that. Say, how's that good news? God will do it on your behalf. You want to earn your way to heaven? You will never see it. Christ must bring you life. If Christ is your life, and even though you die, you will still live. If you seek to preserve your life, in your own power, in your own strength, in your own righteousness, you will lose it because you do not have the ability to hold on to it. Many are those who think they can approach the end of their life and grasp on to their lives, to their things, to their legacy, only to realize that there's absolutely nothing you can do, as as Job said, as one of the earliest books in the Bible, what is to become of our children even after we pass? We go to darkness, and we do not know what the outcome of these things are. 
How is it that we can imagine we can hold on to this life? John is presenting us with the reality that we are insufficient for this. You say, okay, fine. Well, then present me with the life giver. Present me with life himself, with Jesus, and I will, I will neutrally weigh this. If he is a good savior, then I will trust in him. If he's not, then I won't. And here we are faced with the reality, it's not that simple. There are many more things at work in our hearts. Selfishnesses, pride, disbelief, and just rank skepticism. We don't want to be wrong. Nobody, nobody approaches their life and says, you know what I want to do? I wanted to go down a certain path for 10, 15 years and then find out I'm wrong. Nobody wants to do that. It's a hard thing to ever admit if you go down a certain path that you've been wrong about it to try to back up and start over. And so if we are going to follow a Messiah who demands all fealty, then we want to imagine that we have the ability at the start to weigh his claims. He's claiming to be the Son of God, the creator of heavens and earth, through which all things were made, the bearer of the glory of the divine entirely, full of grace and truth, walking in the midst of us. All of that, and we're not even through the first half of John chapter 1. John is presenting us with Christ and saying, look, find yourself in this crowd. You will be in this crowd. There are some of those who believe he was the prophet to come. There are some of those who believe that he truly was the Christ, though in a very surprising way. And there are others who believe that he is not even not worthy of being followed, that he's actually a false teacher. There's division amongst the people. And some of them had scriptural reasons to disbelieve him because they were working with partial information. John, at this point, turns his gospel onto us directly, the reader, and saying, which one are you in the midst of this crowd? Are we like the Pharisees? who even had divisions amongst them. Are we like the crowd who had divisions amongst them? Those who would say, my understanding of scripture trumps the claims of Christ. We'll see all of them here. Let's start. Verse 40. When they heard all these words, meaning the words of 38 and further, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. When they heard all of these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet, meaning John the Baptist. He's the forerunner. That makes sense, right? Others said, no, this is the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah to come. But then others answered them and said, no, 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 no. I have have my scriptures down. I have some of this memorized here. The Christ is not to come from Galilee. The scriptures have said that the Christ comes from Bethlehem of the side of David, the offspring of David, the village where he lived, Bethlehem itself. In fact, so accurate were the prophecies that since there was two Bethlehems, it told specifically which one he would be born in. And so they're, they're sitting there arguing about this and saying, and again, working with incomplete information, they say, he comes from Nazareth, the Messiah can't come from Nazareth, end of story. So whoever he is, whatever he is, it can't be the Christ. John includes that there was division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid 
hands on him. And here we are faced again with the reality that nothing can occur unless it is set for his hour, his day, and his time. This division happens between these people because on the one hand, some see him as John the Baptist, others see him as the Christ, others say, I don't know who he is, but he can't be the Christ, and then others want to arrest him, which means it's none of those other three, we want to arrest him, and then not a single one of them could lay hands on them. So that's four different groups of people inside this one crowd that's standing there on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. Only one of them's right, but they're right and confused. He is indeed the Christ. What does that mean? What does that mean? What did they expect of the Christ? What did they expect him to do? When the Messiah comes, he will save us from our oppressors. He will save us from Rome. He will sit on the throne of David and give us our nation back. That was the overarching theory. And so even those who have rightly identified him as the Christ, the Messiah that was to come into the world, they also are wrong in what that means which means everyone here is arguing over who Christ is, and John is sitting here informing us as the readers, saying, look, they all each think they're right. Some of them have scripture to back them up. Others of them have observations. Other of them have partial information. He says, at the end of it, all of them are wrong. You say, well, that's the crowds. You can't expect that. They didn't study the law or anything like that. And so John does a one-two punch with us and says, fine, it's not just the crowds. Go to verse 45. It says, the officers then came to the chief priests. Now, now we have the representatives of the chief priests and of all the teachers of the law. Surely they, knowing the law of God, knowing the word of God, would have been able to understand who the Messiah was going to be and how to recognize him. The Pharisees and the chief priests who had sent the officers to go and bring him there look at the officers and go, why did you not bring him? And here's where our main focus will be on us. The officers answered and explained why they were not following the instructions of the Pharisees and the chief priests. They just simply say, no one has ever spoken like this man. His words are different. You do not have a run-of-the-mill false messiah that's just trying to gather up some people for himself. No, you have somebody who is just fine with looking at a group of 20,000 people and for the sake of the truth of who he is, makes 20,000 of them leave and only his 12 disciples remain because they've learned that his words are the words of eternal life. And all other things, the popular things, the things that make people happy, those things drive them away. They wanted free bread, remember? It was just one chapter before. They wanted bread forever. They are going to make him king. 
They would recognize him as Messiah, set him up as king, serve him all their days, if only he would give us some bread. And what does Jesus do? No. You are only following me because you had your fill of the loaves. And here, John does the same thing that was previously done with his miracles, now with his words. You cannot just pick and choose what part of Jesus to follow. It is very common amongst churches to look and say, you know, I just love Jesus. And we have a very, um, a very sanguine idea of who Jesus is. He's this, you know, really you know, nice character. Everything's fine. No controversy. Always says most encouraging things to everyone. You know, carries lambs on his shoulders and things like this. And then we read the Gospels and we find somebody completely different than that picture. We find somebody, yes, that is given to meekness and kindness and mercy, but also justice and zeal for the house of the Lord and anger. And willing to be the stumbling block that many trip over. Not only in his miracles, which if you look at the miracles of the feeding of the 5,000 and then his refusal to feed them on the next day simply showed them their lack of faith at all. They only wanted to believe in a Messiah who would serve their natural needs. And he says, I will not be confused with that kind of Messiah. I am not here to liberate you from Rome. I'm here to save you from your sins. I am not here to feed you with bread that perishes. I am the bread from heaven. I am here that you may eat of this body and drink of this blood and live forever. A spiritual salvation on a level that you're not even asking for. He looks at the crowds and he says to them, you think your needs are only this. And I'm telling you, they are far more than that. And the fact that they're only coming at him for bread shows them, one, not only are they wrong about who he is, they are wrong about who they are. Thinking that, just give us bread and it'll be enough for us. Just heal our sicknesses and it'll be enough for us. Just another sign, just another wonder. Here's a person who's lame. Here's a person who's sick. Here's a person who has a fever. Heal these things and it's enough for us. And what does Jesus say? No. It'll never be enough. The healing of the physical maladies or the, the feeding of physical hunger, these things will never, ever satisfy. Do not, he says, pursue the bread that perishes, but the bread that leads to eternal life. John is making us, he is forcing us to face what we want of Christ. And I'm going to break every preaching rule that there is. And I'm going to stick application in the center of this sermon and ask you a question before we finish this text out. What is it you want from Christ? Because if we are honest with ourselves, it is the alleviation of suffering, the comforts of this life, maybe health, Food, career, money, successful children, good retirement, and a long life. 
this is the food that perishes. There's nothing wrong with praying for these things, but if that is all you want from Christ, you will be very disappointed. Keep in your mind as we finish this text what things you truly want from Christ. What do you pray for when you're alone? What do you want? What is at the center of your heart's desire? If Christ showed up, we'll take it from our cultural milieu. If Christ showed up like a genie and said, you get three wishes, what would they be? Well, if you did your homework in Sunday school, you'd go, well, I know the roundabout reverse psychology thing of asking for wisdom and then Solomon get all the riches and stuff. So I'm going to ask for wisdom first. What would they be? A love for him above all things as he reveals himself to be? A love for his word? A focus on his kingdom to come? To share the same heart he has towards sinners? Towards people that hate you? An increase of the fruits of the Spirit? Love? Joy? Peace? Patience? Kindness? Goodness? Faithfulness? Gentleness? Self-control? These things that God wants for his people? Or the stuff of this earth? Maybe we'll say we wish for some patience and some joy, maybe for the alleviation of something, but then we'll add in the stuff of this world as well. I don't want to be sick. I want those that I love not to be sick. I want my life extended. Those that I love to have their lives extended. But my friend, what if the path that God walks with you must needs have the loss of things that are important to you? What if the path that Christ is walking with you must pass through suffering so that patience comes through suffering rather than gifted to you immediately? Is that not what the scriptures say? It is not wrong to want the alleviation of suffering in your life and in those that you love. I watched my youngest daughter nearly suffocate to death this week. And that is not something I'd wish on anybody. Not somebody I hate more than anyone in the world. And yeah, at the time, if you asked me what I would want above all things there at 2 a.m. on Tuesday morning, I would say that. Nothing else filled my mind. But at wiser moments when we sit and reflect upon the word of God, when we sit and understand that the things of heaven are what last and the things of this earth are fading away, to waste our desires on things that perish, on our homes, on our careers, on our finances, money, reputation, fame, whatever it may be, all these things will be taken from us. Christ is making us face this reality that there are only certain things that last to eternity. And here's the marvelous thing, dear Christian. 
If you are a Christian and you are suffering, and you are going through trials of various types, the patience that comes to your life from that will never perish or be taken away. It's not like winning the lottery. Did you know that the vast majority of people who win the lottery are bankrupt within two years? Do you know why that is? The stuff that perishes, perishes. But the virtues of the Christian life bring us to death, through death, and into life eternal. The patience that we work on here will be with us in the eternal state. The sanctification that works in our life is a work that continues past the grave. And what Jesus is here working with them on is to face their own preconceptions about who he is and, more importantly, who they think he ought to be. And this is something that is prevalent in even churches today. We have this idea not just of who Jesus is, but we have this idea of who I want him to be. I need him to be this kind of a ruler. I need him to make the next election go my way. I need him to make the next step in my life work a way that I would prefer it. I need the answer to my prayer to be yes. In essence, I want the strings of eternity in my hands. But Christ doesn't work with us on this level. The crowd comes up and says, well, he seems to be the prophet. He's not the prophet. He seems to be the Christ. He is the Christ, but not how they mean. They mean that he is the Christ in the sense that, they will be, that he will be their king here on this earth. There's division among them. Some of them want to arrest him. The officers were sent by the chief priests and the Pharisees because they too were wrong about him. Those who devoted their life to the study of the scriptures were wrong about him. You say, how can that be? What protection is there even for Christians then? Do we not devote ourselves to the same text? Do we not devote ourselves to... Now, yes, of course, we do have the New Testament. But do we not devote ourselves to the revelation of God? Yes, we do. And it is possible to know the scriptures and to still be wrong about Christ. It is possible to go to church your entire life, to know everything about Christ, and to still get it wrong. That is not comfortable, and John is pointing it out, and he's sticking it to us. Pay attention, he's saying. Because even those who are the chief priests, these aren't just low-level priests. These are those who are gray-haired, have been serving in the temple, who can recite most of the Old Testament from memory. Yes, that was so at this time period in history. And the Pharisees, who could recite the entire Torah from memory, every one of them. You want to start a memorization program, you go ahead and try to memorize the first five books of the Old Testament. I tell you what, try to read through them all within two months first without losing steam. Now memorize them and still be wrong about Christ. My pastor growing up, a man I have respected for many, many years, always said this about the Pharisees. He says, the, the tragedy of the Pharisees is that they had all the right luggage. The only thing they missed was the boat. Standing there on the dock, all packed up, all the right stuff, 
itinerary in hand and just missed the boat. It doesn't matter how well you packed. It doesn't matter how many memory verses you can quote. It doesn't matter how many VBSs you attend, how often you go to church, or what you think you know. Everything hinges on Christ as revealed in Scripture. The Pharisees knew this. The chief priests knew this. And the officers that they sent to arrest Christ knew this. And the reality of what they said is, we went to arrest him and we simply stood there with our mouths open. Nobody's used words like this before. There is something different about him. He's not just an average person claiming to be a Messiah, garnering up a, a, a following, and then trying to storm the, uh, storm the castle. It doesn't work like this with Christ. For some reason, his words had an effect on these officers in such a way that the Pharisees answer back to them here in verse 48 and says, excuse me, verse 47 and says, the Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? calling him a liar. His words are different than ours. Therefore, he is a deceiver. His words are different than we would have expected the Messiah to be. Therefore, he's wrong. Do you see how John is telling us to look at our preconceptions? I will tell you honestly, and I know that steps on some toes, this is one of the reasons why I don't watch movies or anything like this that depicts Jesus in any way. I don't do that because I don't want my view of Christ to be affected by somebody else's imagination. I only want it from Scripture. Because otherwise, and you see this all the time, and, and I love the heart that some people have, but you see a very strange version of Christ. Someone who is overly happy or jovial or jokey. Emotions that we don't see in any of the four Gospels on Christ. We see him as a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, frustrations, angers, corrections, insults to people. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. You are making those who follow you twice the sons of hell that you are. And pronouncing blessings on those who are pure in heart, realizing that none of us have that naturally. None of us are meek. None of us are persecuted for Christ's sake naturally. Those are works that he works in us, gifts that he gives us. Naturally, we desire just the bread from a king. We want money. We want food. We want homes and comforts. We want our sicknesses healed. And while these things may indeed happen, they are not the essence of the kingdom of heaven. Not in this life. Not in this life. The Pharisees will have none of this. They will have none of this because they had put together who Christ would be like, and wouldn't you know it, the Christ to come should look just like them say the same words that they say, believe the same things they believe. So much so that we were actually faced with this a little bit longer down the road in the Gospel of John, where the Pharisees marvel that Jesus would eat with sinners right after he had eaten with them. 
The great issue here is that they didn't marvel that Jesus ate with them. We should all marvel that Christ has saved a wretch like me. Not one of us deserved this. And if scripture is to be believed, not one of us desired it on his account. But God woke us up. God brought us to life. God saved us. The Pharisees here and the authorities, they said to the officers, have you been deceived? This is calling Christ straight up a deceiver, one who is lying. There's nothing right in his words. That's why nobody's ever talked to him before. He said, have any of the authorities or any of the Pharisees believed in him? It's wrong for you to believe in him because we don't. Listen to the way John is doing this. He's appealing to the reader of the Gospel of John straight up. And he's not saying, well, just in case your authorities and your leaders believe in him, that's when you can do so. He says, no, no, no. They were wrong about him. And it would be wrong to follow that kind of leadership. It would be wrong to follow something that's leading you away from Christ as he reveals himself to be. And so they say, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities of the Pharisees believed in him? And then they accuse the entire crowd. They say this crowd, verse 49, that does not know the law is accursed. The only people right about Jesus were in that crowd. Most of them were wrong. Most of them were confused. Some of them were right almost accidentally. But the Pharisees lump them all together and go, anyone here who is putting any stock in anything good he is saying is accursed. Why? Because we don't believe in him. And John is interacting with us and saying, why is it the Pharisees and the authorities didn't believe in him? Why did they reject him? Because he didn't remind them of themselves. Isn't that a really fascinating thing? It is becoming far more popular in our culture to remake Jesus. The internet is full of videos of supposed pastors teaching such things. Jesus would be on this side of this political thing, on that side of this political thing. He would support this type of ideology. He would support this type of identity. He would support this. He would support that. He would support these things. I hear it on both sides of every political argument everywhere. Let me say Run from all of it. If you think Christ is here to serve your interests, and that's the direction that this flows, rather than to save you from your sins for a kingdom eternal in a world without end, then you're wrong. And we'll place ourselves in the confused crowd that's trying to use Jesus for their own ends. And what John is saying is, all of that is wrong. None of that will see him as he is because that's not what his words are saying. And the officers were right. They go up to him and say, he's got new words. This is unlike anything we've ever heard. Nobody's ever spoken like this. He speaks with an authority that drips from every word. 
He doesn't just go and quote some authority or quote some Pharisee or quote some of the things in the Midrash or in the Targums. He doesn't just go and say, this is what the teachers of the law have said for this generation and that one and that one and that one. No, he takes them back to scripture and says, this is what God said to you directly here in the Psalms. He bypasses everything and then speaks straight to their heart and reveals who they are. And the highest percentage of those who did not believe him were to be found amongst the religious leaders. How weird is that? This is a warning to us. Thinking you are right about all spiritual things is not a virtue. One of the highest Christian virtues is the same Old Testament and new. Walk humbly with your God. You do not know everything. I do not know everything. Christ will surprise us. Not only by the path that we walk, but by how powerful he is and how true he is in the face of a world dying. And we will hear words of life and beauty. Words of eternity that speak to our new hearts and say, yes, this suffering and that. Yes, this trial and that. But it is worth it. Not because discomfort is enjoyable, for it is not. It is worth it because my Christ goes with me. And he will never leave me. He will never forsake me. And it is worth everything in this world. Nicodemus is one of the most confusing characters in the Gospel of John. He starts off as a skeptic. He shows up in this story again. He shows up at the end, and I'm not going to give that away. But here we find out he is still in the midst of the Pharisees. And he addresses them on two points. And it's John who uses this to challenge us, and I love it. Verse 50. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before. Remember, Nicodemus was the one who was speaking to him in John chapter 3, where the most famous verse in the Bible was, uh, was given uh, John 3.16. Nicodemus was the one who was speaking to Jesus back then. They were talking about born of the spirit, born of the water, born of the flesh, born of the spirit, all of these differences. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, meaning a member of the Sanhedrin, the 70 men who ruled Jerusalem. They said, uh, he said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him one, a hearing and learning what he does. Words and works. The two things that Jesus has been doing since the very beginning. Words and works. He speaks to them the revelation of God. He speaks to them the truth of God. And his works bear it out, not only as verification, but also as a picture of what he's here to do. As the great physician who heals sinful hearts, he is able to say to the paralytic, Arise and walk. Take up your bed and go home. Oh, by the way, your sins are forgiven you. And everyone in the room questions this reality. Who is this man who says he can forgive sins? Nobody can forgive sins except God alone. Correct? 
They are right and wrong all at the same time. And Jesus says, so that you may know that the Son of Man has the power to forgive sins on earth. He looks to the man who is paralyzed and says, stand up, take up your bed, and go home. And he creates new muscles and neuropathways for him in an instant. Balance, things that would have been lost to time for this man. But God, who created the heavens and the earth, is walking in their midst, forgiving sins and healing people. But how many people would take his healings without the forgiveness? How many people would take the bread without his words? How many people would simply follow him for the benefit it brings to their life rather than following him because of who he is? Nicodemus says we must listen to his words and we must hear his works. And then they all disparaged him and says, are you also from Galilee too? Search and see. I'll paraphrase for a second and then read it. Galilee is worthless. No prophet comes from Galilee. Are you a worthless person, Nicodemus? He is a worthless person. He's from Galilee. Listen to that backcountry accent he has. Nobody of value comes from there. And I think this would be a challenge to anybody who thinks that we can judge Christ simply by what we see rather than by what he says and what he does. This is one of the most important aspects and it's something I even prayed for this morning and I continually pray for. God, give us ears to hear. God, give us eyes to see what is in his word. Why? Because our natural desires do often take over when we come to scriptures, don't they? We want to see something encouraging. We want to see something that would make us smile or make us happy. There's very few times where we come to Scripture and go, you know what, I'm feeling a little bit too proud about myself. I really want to be shoved down about eight notches in pride. I really want out of my Bible study this morning not to be encouraged, I want to be humbled. Maybe we should pray for that. Though I will say, be careful what you pray for. Praying for humility is a very dangerous prayer because I can promise you it will be granted with a yes. So will the request to God give me wisdom. James chapter 1 promises that to all who ask him for wisdom, he will give it to them liberally. But in context, such wisdom only comes through trials. You pray for wisdom, I promise you, you will get it. You pray for humility, I promise you, you will get it, Christian. You pray for any of the things that Christ promises to his people, to love one another, to love his word, to have joy and peace and patience and kindness, I promise you, you will get it. With time and with struggle and with difficulty, but it will be worth it. My friends, it will be worth it. This is what Christ promises. Can you be a Christian and not pray for these things? Sure. Sure. 
Don't settle for that. There are layers of Christians in this world, even in Scripture. There were certain Christians that were, that were, uh, that were expressed as more noble-minded than others. They kept in mind their identity and who they were and valued the changes that Christ brought into their life that they did not have a natural ability to. We don't have a natural ability to increase our love of the things that God loves or to joy in the things that God joys in. We don't have a natural ability to this, so we must request, we must sanctify only by the Spirit of God to bring life to these dead bones. So we do not think that Christ is here only to meet what we desire elsewise. God, make my suffering go away. Make my hunger go away. Make my low numbers in my bank account go away. My stocks to go up and my kids to be successful and happy. Christ wants so much more for his people than that. So much more. And here John is introducing us to this reality. Do not chase the bread that perishes but the bread that gives eternal life, Christ himself. Let's pray. Our Father, we are grateful because you have made us so. We pray, Father, not for comforts, for comfort can be taken away. We pray not even for freedom, for freedoms can be taken away. We pray your will be done in this earth as it already is in heaven, in our hearts, our actions, our homes, our churches, and in this world. We pray in the midst of all of these things, what sufferings pass our way. We do not pray for it to be easy, Father. We only pray that you go with us and that you have other Christians go alongside us as well. We thank you for the fellowship of the saints and the grace of the Spirit. We pray for all these things in your Son's name. Amen.